Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guests on today's show are Mario Giannini and John Toomey. Mario and John lead two of the largest private equity fund investors in the world. Mario is the CEO of Hamilton Lane, which manages over $100 billion and supervises another $700 billion in non-discretionary assets. And John is half of the executive management committee of HarborVest, which also manages in excess of $100 billion in the space. Both are past guests on the show, and we've replayed those conversations in the feed. Mario and John joined me to canvas the private equity markets. Our conversation covers the health and valuation of underlying portfolio companies, new deals, secondary markets, dry powder, 
fundraising, portfolio construction, winners and losers, new sources of capital, private credit, co-investments, ESG, China, and geopolitical risk. Before we get going, on Wednesday, we'll release the fifth episode of season two of Private Equity Deals. It's a discussion of Apollo's purchase of Yahoo a year and a half ago. You heard that right. Apollo bought Yahoo. So what did Apollo see as the potential in this long-standing, slowly declining business? Subscribe to Private Equity Deals on your favorite podcast player to find out. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Mario Giannini from Hamilton Lane and John Toomey from HarborVest. John, Mario, thanks so much for joining me. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. Why don't we just start with an open-ended question of how you're viewing the market day-to-day now? And Mario, why don't you kick it off? The market day-to-day now is really uncertain. I was telling someone the other day that in 08, it was a little easier. It was worse. But in 08, it was binary. Either the world was going to end economically or we were going to be fine. And that was kind of it. It was one of the two. And you sort of knew which way it was going to go, but you didn't quite sure. This doesn't feel binary. This feels like we don't know what's going to happen to inflation. We don't know what's going to happen to interest rates. We don't know what's going to happen to the economy. We don't know geopolitically. I personally am far less bearish than what I think consensus is, but who cares? Because you can create a scenario with a complete degree of credibility that paints very, very different outcomes. So as we look at investing in that environment, whether you're doing public equity, private equity, whatever you're doing, has a degree of uncertainty that I don't think we've really had to deal with for quite some time. John? I would tend to agree. I would describe it as I see a lot of stress in the system. I wouldn't say that we see crisis looming on the horizon, but rising interest rates, particularly at the rate that it occurred, some of the areas where you're starting to see pop up, like in the banking sector, declining valuations, a whole series of the geopolitical uncertainty that exists. I would describe the market as being under stress. I don't quite see it in terms of the crisis level stress, but for all those reasons, there's stress in a lot of places. And stress does two things. One is it creates headwinds in certain parts of the market, but actually, in my view, creates opportunities in other parts of the market to invest into the stress. Before we start walking through it and pulling it apart, Mario, I have to ask you, you certainly don't hear a lot of people feeling bullish about much of anything these days. What are the key tenets of your bull case for private equity? My bull case for private equity is that there's probably a more bullish case for the general economic environment. I think that inflation peaked a while back and is headed down. I don't know if it'll get down to 2%. I don't think it really matters. I think the most global economies outside of perhaps China are going to go into a recession and it will be a shallow one. And I think as people begin to recognize that, that the horrible outcomes are not going to happen, you're going to have investors go, oh, it's not so bad. This could take a long time. It could take six months before that general realization happens. But that's my bullish case is that we are going to have a downturn. It will cause rates to stop rising. It will cause inflation to come down quite a bit. And we're not going to have an 08. We're not even probably going to have an 01, 02 recession. So that's my case. John, let's go from the macro to the micro. And maybe we'll start with 
the existing portfolio companies of your managers. The first question everyone's scratching their head about now is valuation. What are you seeing in terms of marks, where they are today, and where you think they might be headed based on conversations with your managers? I think it depends whether you're in the venture growthy part of the market or the general buyout market. I think throughout 2022, everybody expected with the declines in public equity values that the other shoe would drop in privates. And frankly, we didn't see that. Underlying in company performance continued to be strong even in the second half of the year. And we saw, I'd say, low single-digit declines even at year-end for the broad buyout market, probably plus or minus 5%. I think the place where we saw the most significant write-downs were in the venture, but even the growth part of the market, by and large. Those are the places where you had a melt-up in valuations on the tech side in 2021 into 2022. And I think certain managers, particularly the crossover investors, the mutual fund investors that publish their company valuations every quarter now, they really invested into that and took those valuations up to full value. That's where we saw the greatest declines. I mean, in some cases, 25% declines for those types of managers. But for the rest of the venture market that just had much broader exposure and frankly didn't participate in quite as much of the melt up, we've seen over the course of 22, probably 10-ish, 15% declines in values for those broadly diversified portfolios. Mario, how about on the private equity side, say, you know, away from venture, traditional buyouts? It's a funny period. In 01 and in 08, when the public markets went down, private equity was outperforming by a ton. And people weren't crazed. This time they're crazed. And you hear stuff like, this is an industry filled with Bernie Madoffs that haven't been caught yet. It's all this valuation stuff is fraudulent. And it's not. As John said, what's happened in the regular buyout, boring, dull world is that world didn't invest in the big tech companies that led the public market decline. So it didn't have that kind of portfolio exposure. The earnings were much better than they were in the public markets. That's another factor. And the other thing, at the end of 21, you saw the biggest delta between public multiples and private multiples. And so they were buying it. I mean, there were high prices, but compared to the publics, they were lower. So I think what you're seeing in the private markets is actually what's happening. It's not that the values are inflated or there's a lag factor. They're legitimate valuations. And it's why, by the way, you're in private equity. It just, sorry, it performs better. I apologize for that as a private equity person, and it makes public equity people enraged. That's why you invest in it. The other phenomenon of more recently, certainly in the venture side, is this big change potentially in the financing markets. I'm curious what you're seeing in those companies as legacy debt at cheaper rates looks to roll over, both in just availability because of what's happened in the aftermath of SVB and the risk from interest costs as that debt gets rolled over. That's a little bit what I mean by the stress. I think a lot of the press that captures the broad brush demise of the entire industry might make for great reading, but I don't know that that's reality. What I think we're more likely to see is I think the industry by and large did use lines of credit much more liberally than they ever have. And I do think that's going to pull back. Now, it doesn't pull back in an instant. In fact, even the lines of credit at some of the banks that failed since they've now been taken over, they're actually flowing again and they're being used by managers within the industry. But when they come up for renewal in three months and six months and nine months, 
and they aren't renewed or they're shrunk, I think you'll start to see a little bit more funding activity into the underlying funds. I think the venture debt business, the same thing, you'll have a bit of a retrenchment there. So what does that actually mean? Well, I think in the venture space, what it means is managers will more conservatively capitalize their underlying companies. They will reserve more for those companies for follow-on investments when we enter a market where there will be a premium for capital availability, which is what I think we are in right now. What that means is you might end up actually seeing managers coming to market sooner than they otherwise would have because they're going to reserve more in order to support their underlying companies. I think the weaker companies will fail. I think the stronger companies will have less competition. And I think notwithstanding the long-term returns that I agree with Mario on that we've seen in this industry, there are cycles and it's subject to cycles and we're certain we're into a new cycle that has some similarities to what we've seen in the past and also some differences. Mario, thoughts on implications from the financial markets? I think certainly on the venture side, there's no doubt that you're going to see a lot of venture companies just hit the wall. They benefited from just a ton of liquidity. And as John's alluded, that liquidity is gone and it's going to be gone for quite some period of time. But you saw in the aughts, the venture world just kind of cratered. And a lot of that is going to happen this time. There are a lot of really good companies and they'll do fine. Everyone tells me, well, hey, Google was formed during the Great Recession. But yeah, so were 100 companies that went nowhere. And so I think we're going to be in that kind of period on the venture side. People will make a lot of money and there's going to be a fair amount of money lost. In terms of the financing markets on the regular private equity world, if rates stay where they are, and in my world, obviously, they're not going to go up that much, this isn't catastrophic. I get people saying to me, well, 4%, I mean, how can private equity operate? It did pretty damn well at 4% for a very long period of time. It's not as though, wow, we've never seen this before. I mean, to me, zero rates sort of turbocharged. It was private equity returns on steroids. So we'll go back to a pre-steroid environment and everyone, they'll all look like me rather than someone who's actually bulked up. And so I think that that's the sort of thing that we're in for. There will be a readjustment. People will have to figure out what they're doing. They'll refinance. It'll be more expensive. It'll be a little harder to get. But my God, you would think that there was not a penny in the world to do any deals or to refinance. And that's just not the case. So as this adjustment is happening in the financing markets, what does that imply about exits of the existing portfolio companies in your manager's portfolios? I think you'll see an elongation of the holding period. So when you look back and you saw what happened, again, it's not the same as the global financial crisis, but there's some lessons learned there. I think when managers are sitting on investments that are one and a half times, four or five years in, they look at that and say, you know, I just don't know that that's an acceptable return. So I'm going to hold on for a little bit longer. Most of this debt has no covenants. I mean, it's a beautiful thing for the equity owners. But I think what you'll see is you'll see duration gap out a bit further. And so as a result, again, another stress, another pressure in the market is institutional investors aren't getting the realizations that all their models are built off of and we've become used to, it'll put a little bit more pressure on fundraising for new funds in the institutional investor community. If you think about it, where interest rates were a year ago and where they are now, any company that had less than two times interest coverage is probably looking around trying to cut costs and maybe take an equity injection in order to bring that interest coverage back below one. And that, from what I hear from our managers, that's what the last six or nine months have been, which is almost scrambling to ensure that you've got adequate free cash flow coverage 
to really weather the storm in what has been a pretty extraordinary time of increasing interest rates in a very short period of time. Mario? It means returns are going down. IRR is kind of a math game. And John's right, we will have elongated hold periods, which means IRRs are coming down. Now, presumably, the public market returns are also coming down from what they were the last five, 10 years. But I think people need to recognize that. I know general partners in particular like to talk to you about the wonderful opportunities that are coming in the next few vintage years. And by the way, don't look behind this curtain because these last few vintage years may not be so great. And they won't be. I think that will be part of what we'll all have to deal with is a series of disappointing returns. It's like the old RJR Nabisco deal where everyone went, wasn't that great? Yeah, you got 7% over 20 years. Thank you very much. I think we're going to be looking at some of that dynamic as we go through this period. History is a good indicator of that, exactly what Mario has said. When you look back, people think the 0708 vintage years were the trough years in the bio world. And in fact, they weren't. When you look at the top quartile returns, they got to over 2x, almost 20% IRRs. Median returns were 1819 and 14% returns. Back to Mario's analogy to the curtain, you had to actually go further back behind the curtain to look at the 04, 05, 06 vintage years. Top quartile still got just below 2x. It was a 1.9 on average in those vintage years, but the IRRs were 12 to 13%. So it would play out, I think, exactly as we had seen in the stressed environment that we live in today. Mario, in theory, when you go through this period, you should have looking out better opportunities going forward. How are you seeing the pace of new deals getting done, even if there's repricing, if assets aren't getting sold at the same clip? What's happening now is the deal activity has slowed. There's no question, especially compared to what it was in the heyday of 21, 20. What you're seeing in this market today is on the equity side, the deals being done are really good companies, great companies that the seller has enough of a profit or companies selling it, whoever's doing it, that they're comfortable at that price. And the buyer, the general partner, is comfortable because they believe that it will go through any kind of period and be okay. So multiples are not coming down on that a little bit, but not very much. You're not seeing a bunch of transactions at value prices because nobody really knows what value is in this market because the stress, the uncertainty. So the deal activity has come down, but surprisingly, I don't think the prices have really come down because of the types of assets being purchased. I would argue that most people are probably making a mistake. The mistake you make in most cycles is you act too soon and you go, oh, shoot, I wish I'd waited. But I think that's what we're seeing today. I don't think there's, on the equity side, we're still in a price discovery phase, I believe, where people just aren't sure, how do I value this normal company? That's where it feels like today. John, how does price discovery come out of that, if you look back at past cycles? In some ways, it just takes a bit of time. The company ultimately, like any illiquid asset, is only worth what a third party will pay you for it when you decide to sell. That's the key, when you decide to sell. So as Mario said, he's right. I mean, it's kind of like the reverse of what happens in an up market. So the early parts of the up market, the best companies are sold at what seem to be extraordinary multiples. But then what happens is the second best and the third best, the fourth, all of a sudden, companies that have some flaws, some customer concentration, not as great market position they start trading up as well, and the whole market does. So what we're seeing now is a bit of an unwind to that. I think you'll see broken auctions. So managers will bring an asset to market, you know, when they're holding it at a certain multiple and they have certain price expectations. And when those price expectations aren't met, they'll sit on it. 
They may see another couple other transactions take place at other multiples, and then eventually they decide to bring it back to market. They can also get price discovery in a couple of other ways. The secondary market, the continuation fund market, the recap market, the co-investment market, those are all areas of the market with pretty sophisticated investors that are in the business of creating returns for their investors, of which, you know, how they enter the business, particularly when they don't actually push and pull the levers the way the lead sponsors do, their business is about deal selection and pricing. And I think that's where you'll start to see some of those early indicators of price discovery. What are you seeing in secondary market activity now? Mario, why don't you go ahead? A lot of talk and no action. The number of limited partners that are inquiring about how much would you pay for this portfolio, because they want to create liquidity to invest more, not because of the denominator effect, but they want liquidity for various reasons. But then when you say the price, whatever it is, and they go, well, that's not going to happen. On the continuation fund, the same thing. A lot of, I would say, high quality companies, it's just, does everyone want to pay NAV for that company? And the answer is generally, uh, I don't know about that today. No market has zero going on. But I would say there's a tremendous amount of discussion and very little action compared to the amount of discussion that's going on. Everyone knows it's coming whenever people figure out what the price is and get comfortable around that. But is it a month? Is it six months? Is it a year? I don't think anyone knows that today. I would agree. I think we've seen a little bit more activity. I mean, again, the secondary market's really bifurcated to the traditional LP market and then the single asset continuation fund market. I think we are seeing some institutional investors who do the price discovery that Mario described, particularly those that take a view on asset value. And they say, you know, I'm better off selling at 80 at today's NAV than what I think might be some lower NAV in the future. We are seeing that. And we're also seeing institutional investors, you know, when you're staring at a discount and a write-off in the portfolio, it often becomes all too easy to just say, well, why don't we just increase our allocation to 18% from 16 and we'll just ride the storm. And I think we're seeing more of that conversion with what Mario describes on the allocation side. John, are there distinctions between that you call traditional portfolio secondaries and the single asset from the continuation funds in terms of what you're seeing in the market? I would tell you the single asset or the GP LEDs, I mean, that market evolved the way the LP market did. The early returns were spectacular. Capital follows the returns as it always does. And then people follow the capital, right? There's more opportunities. And so we've seen that develop admittedly in a much shorter period of time. I think last year might've been the first year or it was maybe in 21 where the GP led market was larger than the LP market. Those deals are pretty chunky. And in many ways, the market is capital constrained. When you look at the amount of dry powder and secondaries relative to the annual deal flow, and you compare it to literally every other part of private equity, it's pretty extraordinary how undercapitalized it is, despite all the large size funds that are being raised within the market. That momentum of the GP led actually reversed course in 22, and Mario alluded to that. It's a lot easier for an asset owner to decide to sell a portfolio of LP interests at 80 because they have a particular objective in mind than it is for a general partner to convince their existing investors to take the option of selling at 80 cents on the dollar for that single company or that small portfolio of companies when the manager themselves are on sitting on both sides of the transaction because they're rolling their economics or they're going to benefit from continuing to hold on. So the continuation fund market, the single assets, that really slowed 
And I think until we start to see a little bit more normalization of the bid-ask spread at numbers, at least in the 90s, not necessarily at par, I think you'll see some headwinds in the continuation fund market in the near term. Mario, on the New Deal side, we hear a lot about record amounts of dry powder, that before this little contraction in the public market prices, the GPs raised more money than we've ever seen in the past. What happens with all that capital over the next couple of years? It gets spent, (laughs) is the short (laughs) answer. The dry powder thing is so irrelevant to what's going on, I think, in the market. I would argue it's a sign of a very healthy market and a growing market when you have more dry powder coming in. And that's what's happened in private equity, private credit, all those different illiquid markets. It will get spent. Remember, a lot of that dry powder is stuff that is six, seven years old in a fund that John talked about. GPs reserving capital, all that capital doesn't get spent. So the whole dry powder thing is kind of a red herring. It will get spent in some way, shape, or form. It is spread around a lot of general partners. It is spread around a lot of geographies, different types of investing, different styles of investing. And there's a ton of deal flow that will come into these markets as the economies normalize and as people feel less stress and have less uncertainty. So I'm not worried about the dry powder being spent, nor am I worried about it being spent in stupid deals because they have to spend it. That's just not how it works. And if they have money, they haven't spent it, they get extensions. It has a way of regulating itself without people going nuts about, oh my God, there's too much money chasing too few deals. So as you're seeing these higher quality deals still getting done at not too much discounted prices from where they may have been in the past, where are you seeing intrigue from the GPs across industries? Are there certain segments where people are still very engaged and looking in the economy compared to others? By volume of deals recently, it's been technology and healthcare by a wide margin. I think on the tech side, we have seen a pullback on values, but there's a question of, you know, are you catching a falling knife? And even if you do, you may still invest in a great company to create an attractive return, although you're going to cut your fingers off or you're just going to bleed out. How much risk are you taking on the falling knife? When you look at by number of companies, though, it's actually interesting. It's consumer, it's industrial. I think what we've seen is we see continued interest in healthcare writ large, anything kind of tangentially related to innovation. It really talks about innovation, but through the venture cycle and the venture market. And of course, that's where the bulk of it is. But innovation also reaches into the broader private equity markets and companies using innovation to enhance supply chain to enhance the delivery of healthcare services. Those are where managers I've seen show some pretty interesting resolve and interest. Mario, thoughts? It's funny. I was thinking as John was answering that one of the curious things about at least this cycle right now is that there really isn't any predominant theme that says, oh, here's an incredible opportunity space like in tech. As John was describing, there are great characteristics behind these industries that will drive growth and profits forward. But I'm not really seeing places where people go, there's a pocket of opportunity because values are low or there's a capital shortage or whatever it is. This is not today anyway, a particularly theme-driven market. As you look out a couple of years, Maya, you alluded to the denominator effect. What are you seeing in terms of the LP demand for funds as they're thinking about the next fundraising cycle? I think this is where the industry will have its biggest shift from 
the last 10 years. And I don't think this is driven because the market's gone down. I think this was something that was destined to happen. The industry has simply outgrown both in terms of its size and its desire for more size has outgrown the limited partner capacity to fund it for a period of time. There's just not enough money in the world to give GPs everything that they want, whether it's a much bigger fund. They've all raised their flagship fund, then their flagship fund that's a little smaller, then their flagship fund that's a little smaller than that, and then their flagship fund that doesn't cover anything the other funds did. They all have multiple products. I think LPs are sitting there going, now what do I do? Because I don't have enough money to do everything I want to do, given what I've been doing for the last 10 years. So I think this is really where the industry is going to have a pressure point over the next two, three, four years. This is not a, oh, the market goes up 20% and everything's magically solved. LPs are sitting there going, if I have 100 to invest, I really wish I had 500. So what do I do? Do I cut back the number of managers? Do I give everyone a little bit? And I think those are the discussions that are going on, and GPs are frantic around it because they obviously want to be one of the ones and they don't want anyone else to get any money. This is one of the discussions that will dominate the industry for some period of time, I think. I agree with all that. I mean, it was first a numerator effect with the swell of values, then it was the denominator effect. Then we started to see a decline in distributions, and then we had back to the stress in the system. So I think we still see the stress. We'll see not a full unwind, but we'll see more calls being made really all the way throughout the system, more conservative capitalization. We've seen managers essentially fully equitize their companies today with the view that they're just going to refinance out in a better market instead of taking it as much or with the same level of debt that they've used. So Mario's right. I see it the same way. There was already headwinds within the market. But again, back to stress creates opportunities. I mean, just like in other periods of dislocation in the market, I do think you'll see a consolidation of the brand extensions that we've seen to Mario's point. I mean, it's, you know, everybody was raising a large fund and a medium fund and a small-ish fund and a micro fund and a tiny fund and industry funds. We've already actually begun to see that with some very strong managers within the market. But I actually think it will create a premium for investors with capital today. And I think if you have capital, you probably will have access points into managers or expand your positions in managers' funds in ways that are very difficult to do when capital is free-flowing within the industry. So the two of you are two of the largest players in the industry. And on the other side, are your investors have to be facing these same kind of questions. So I'd love to drop down on that a little more. Mario, we can start with you capital might not be as abundant. So you have to make effectively capital allocation decisions across your portfolio. And on the other hand, if you do have the capital, there could be some great opportunities. How are you going about making those hard decisions? I think that is, bluntly, it's kind of what you're paid to do. And so you try to select on the manager side, the best managers. And as John said, you have an opportunity here to either increase your allocations to managers that otherwise were closed off to whatever you wanted, or new ones that just didn't take new investors or you didn't have a relationship with. So you do that. That's part of what you do. I think the trickier question is a lot of our clients make some of those decisions themselves, and then we help them with some of that. I mean, the range of outcomes is unbelievable. You literally have people that are making tiny investments in 100 managers so that they, it's like you never say no to anyone. And so you just don't. And others that are 
severely cutting back the number of managers with whom they will commit. And then it has that whole ripple effect with the general partners who now realize, oh my gosh, now what am I going to do? I need to go find new capital or I need to just sit in someone's office till they finally say yes or shoot me. And that's a lot of what's going on. These are real-time decisions. As I said, I think this is going to go on for quite a long time. So Mario, just on the capital where you have full discretion, what's the playbook that you're using in terms of the appropriate level of concentration with the ones you're trying to get into compared to continued diversification as you may have had it a year or two ago when it felt like there was more than ample capital to invest in everything you wanted to? We're cutting back. There's no question. I'm not a big believer in the amount of diversification that most of this industry says you got to have. You have to cut back the number of relationships you have and concentrate them on those groups that right or wrong you believe are going to get you through this next part of the cycle and do it well. And those are hard decisions because people get angry and they yell and scream at you and that's what happens. But there's no question that you need to be cutting back the number of relationships, particularly because it then leaves you room to do newer things if that's what you want to do. Because otherwise you're just stuck doing nothing but what you've been doing for 20 years, which I don't know, normally that's not a great recipe for success going forward. On the margin, so that last one manager, it's clearly subjective decisions. What do you go through with your team in deciding, okay, we're just cutting the line here, when you know in the back of your head, well, maybe this isn't the one we should be cutting. Maybe it should be the guy just before them, the woman just before them. How do you go about making that decision and keeping your conviction when it's so subjective on the margin? Well, first, they don't let me do it because (laughs) they know I'll be wrong, (laughs) which is usually the case. You have arguments and you have disagreements and you give it your best shot and you know you're going to be wrong. You know you're going to be wrong some of the times. There's no way to avoid that, but you do your best on it and you have people in the organization that have been through cycles, that have experience, that are looking at it and going, I know I'm not infallible, but man, I've seen this before. This sort of rhymes with what I've seen and heard before. And here's how I think we ought to think about it. And if you have enough of those people around the table and enough people challenging it, you tend to come to enough right decisions that you don't go out of business. John, I want to bring the same question over to you. On your team, how are you guys making these active decisions about what to do in a more capital-constrained environment? Like Mario, I mean, a lot of our clients come to us for a particular solution. For some, it's just broadly diversified. We want you to do our private markets for them. Or for some, it's point solutions. You know, I do a lot on my own, but you know what I really need is venture or Asia or secondaries or co-investments. So we're building discrete portfolios. We have a saying here that it's very difficult to time private markets, but it's very easy for the markets to time you. So When managers raise capital on shorter and shorter time cycles, they raise bigger funds. Your pro rata allocation is twice what it was before. If you think about the frenzy that occurs in the up market, it's very easy to get timed by the market. Our strategy, we are a big believer in diversification and a little bit of steady as we go as we build our portfolio. So we try to manage our, call them the portfolio elements that we build to be similarly sized for that part of the market that we're investing into and not get caught up in the, let's walk it up because we have the access or let's walk it down because we think it's a risk on part of the market. And the level of diversification, you know, to Mario's point, it kind of depends upon what part of the market you're in. 
you probably should have more diversification in venture in Asia than you do in the North American bio market because the dispersion of returns that our QIS team has shown over the 40 years of data that we have says you do want to grab some of that right-hand tail that exists in markets where you just have those types of returns. So that's how we build our portfolios is to be steady. I do think what happens in this market though is we've got a forward pipeline and we're evaluating the opportunity cost with every investment decision that we make. What's the other manager that looks just like this and when are they coming into the market? What's the alternative? And in other strategies, we have a flexible approach. What's the other strategy or geography that we can invest in? What are the merits of that? So that opportunity cost argument is just fundamental to our investment selection process. And in a market like this, what can happen is you may say, look, if I have two managers that I believe are substantially equivalent, I'm going to take the burden hand in a good market. I can make that investment. I can actually begin to invest the capital. But now that there's become a premium on capital availability, if we have two managers that we believe are substantially similar, we may actually say, you know what, let's wait. Let's actually not make that investment today in that fund. And let's see how the market plays out because we think we still have an opportunity to invest in something that looks pretty similar to what we're foregoing today. John, a question on managing your business and funds over time. So as you said, if the capital finds the market, you can imagine as capital is coming in as it did to tech and then late stage tech in the last couple of years before this contraction, more capital is getting raised. And at the same time, the performance of that area is good. If you're steady stating the pace so that you don't have to make the contractions, you can envision the cyclicality of returns not affecting you as much. So perhaps that strategy, think of it as more of an equally weighted strategy than a performance-driven strategy. If that's the case, I think it's logical that it would. What have you seen and how have you managed the organization and the business? Because you could imagine that that leads to a slightly different type of return path as what the market might be doing if it's chasing and therefore doing well in the good times and then there's a contraction and it's doing a little less well in those areas. I mean, in our business, probably similar to Mario's, we've got a forward pipeline of the managers. We have a sense of what our firm-wide allocation would be. So when we take on a new client mandate, we've got some insight of like, okay, well, what's the hypothetical portfolio? What would that look like? And in certain parts of the market, how deep would we go in order to complete that portfolio over the time frame that the mandate prescribes? To the extent that we believe that we're going into a part of the market or a depth of the market because of the allocations available to us because of the managers that we're selecting, we could get into a different part of the market where we don't think the returns are equivalent to the ones that we do invest in today. We won't take on that mandate. And that's painful. That's painful. But that is the guardian, the protection of, for us, the brand that we've built over 40 years, that if you drift astray from that, right, if you go too quickly, there's a pacing element in here. As long as we have a sense of what's coming online, what's happening in the market in front of us, what's the duration, we've got some levers, as Mario said, if we too need to elongate by a year, four years instead of three years, as long as we have all those levers at our control, then we can continue to grow the business and give our clients the same type of experiences they've enjoyed from us for a long time. I do want to say one thing, because I think what you're hearing from John and I is fairly unique in this industry. You're hearing portfolio construction. 
which is not what this industry talks about. This industry is nothing if not the chaser of the shiniest ball that comes in the room. And that is part of what leads to some of the issues that the industry periodically has. Because, Ted, your question is right. There are periods of time when someone who's doing portfolio construction the way you're hearing here will underperform because you're not 80% in venture and venture is having a great time and everyone goes, how come my portfolio is not up 800%? It's only up 50 and I hate that. Those are real discussions. And that's part of why portfolio construction actually works over a longer period of time. So Mario, when we're going through this period of time where folks like you will make these harder decisions about where to allocate capital in the next funds, who are you seeing ends up as winners and losers from the GP side? I think as you enter this world where it's not like it was five years ago, I suspect the winners will be those general partners, those groups that have had a pretty good strategy of how they're going to grow. They haven't just chased, you know, I'm going to have 17 funds because my competitors have 17 funds. I think people with longer track records will be winners. Unfortunately, that means that a lot of newer managers are going to struggle. I don't think being a newer manager in the next two or three years, unless you have some incredibly great area you're in or have something unique, are going to do very well. It just seems like the more conservative, I'll call them, organizations are probably going to be winners over the next two or three years. And as general partners position themselves, I suspect that's part of what you will now begin to hear. Because three years ago, you heard, I am cutting edge. I am new. I am unbelievable in the Marvel universe, you've just never seen me before. Now it's going to be, hey, I'm Superman. I'm Batman. You know me. You know what I've done. You know how I am. And I'm tried and true. I've been through all these villains and I can get you through this one. That to me is probably going to be the characteristics of the winners. Mario, what are some of the key signposts of what conservative means? Because some of the ones who have been around as long as Batman are the same organizations that have expanded into multiple products and every way across the landscape. Yeah, I think one of the things that investors are going to have to do is spend a little more time understanding the governance at some of these general partners, because I think you're right. Some of the general partners that have been around a long time, what you realize now is what they have become is a collection of deal people. And it's not an organization anymore. It is Mario and Ted and John out doing their own deals. And the gray hair that you thought was overseeing it all isn't really overseeing it all. We're going to have to begin to understand how some of these firms have operated internally if we haven't already. That's going to be a sea change for a lot of limited partners as they begin to do this analysis. They're simply going to have to understand what has been happening internally because you're right. What has happened at a lot of these firms is that the governance structure has shifted and what you thought you were investing in is not the same firm. That's just part of, I think, a diligence process that we as an industry are going to have to spend a little more time on. John, winners and losers? Yeah, I had the same view as Mario. I think there'll be a consolidation of capital in the market in particular. There'll be a contraction of brand extensions. I think it's be hard to be a new manager here. And one of the things I've loved about this industry in the three decades I've been a part of it is there's something that is rejuvenating about it. There's a bunch of managers today that we would consider be brand names that didn't exist 15 years ago. So the opportunity to create those relationships, to invest in them, to be founding investors in a lot of those funds. That's an exciting part of the industry overall. I heard when Mario said conservative, where my mind went was conservative, but from a 
what type of risk do you as an investor want to take? Like we take market risk with every investment that we make ultimately, but do I want to take the risk of three people who've never worked together when I have an alternative to invest in another part of the market? And even if you're an established manager, to Mario's point on governance, you can have a manager that is the same eight people driving and leading and executing on exactly the same strategy. And now you're just assessing of, has the market evolved and how do I underwrite that new investment opportunity in light of what this manager has done historically? Or are they in the midst of a governance transition? And if they're in the midst of the governance transition, whether I know it or not, because it's not always necessarily transparent on the face, I'm underwriting different risks and that wouldn't necessarily be labeled conservative in my view. So I think it's a choice of what risk do you want to take? And I think we will see investors in a scarce capital environment gravitate to that. For me, the winners as well, if I think less on the manager side, but really on the investor side, again, back to my belief that we're entering a window where there is a premium available for capital availability. So if you are a newer investor in the asset class, if you are sitting on an allocation of five, six, seven percent and you're trying to get to 10, I think it's actually a pretty interesting time to create investable opportunities and to create exposures that in managers that might not have been available to you four or five years ago. So one of the things we hear about capital coming into that space on the margin who may be able to access that opportunity is really two buckets that seem to come up a lot, retail and the Middle East. And would love to hear, Mario, I want you to kick it off, your perspectives of where we are on that money actually coming into the space. What I can say about the Middle East is if you want to meet general partners, just go to the Middle East and sit in the lobby for a day. <laughs> You'll meet them all. It's the most efficient way to sit down with all of them. What John was describing about where some limited partners are best describes most of the Middle Eastern investors, not all, but most of them. So there is probably more capital available in the Middle East today than there are in other parts of the world, just in terms of concentration. So yes, there is more. Is it unlimited? Is it enough to fund all the general partners? Absolutely not. And then the retail is an interesting one because over a period of time, retail will continue to be a larger, and by retail, I probably mean high net worth because when I hear retail, it's not my sister through her account at Fidelity. I don't know that that's really what we're talking about as much as the high net worth, the mass affluent channel. That will continue to be a growing part of the market. It will have hiccups. We saw the ones at the end of last year on some of the name products. And so I think people need to be careful in terms of how they're selling into that market, the investor base that they're willing to accept in that market. If it's a lot of people that want to do a trading strategy, is that really where you want to be? And I think we will have some real ups and downs in terms of both investor and manager experience in that market. But it's a trend that will continue over the next 10 years, whether it's bigger than the institutional market or equal or somewhat smaller, I'm not sure, but it will be an increasingly important part. And to the winners and losers, it is not an equally accessible part. There are a lot of managers everywhere who will not get access into that market. So I think it will create some distortions, if you will, in terms of who is accessing that market in scale and who simply has no ability to get at that market. John, maybe we click in there. I know when we first met, it was not too long after the beginning of your relationship with Vanguard. We'd love to hear your experience and what you're seeing from that channel. Yeah. So can you just be super positive? 
They've been wonderful partners. We're in our fourth year, or fourth vintage, if you will, on our relationship. And what we've seen in the small institutional side and the non-institutional side is maybe the way that I would describe it. So not quite all the way to retail, as Mario described. The packaging needs to be different. Those clients have different needs, different reporting timelines, sometimes different access points. The Vanguard relationship in particular is what I think of as institutional packaging for the small and non-institutional market. That's what we decided together with them as the most logical foray. What I've seen to the small institutional, non-institutional market is channel partners say, we don't actually want a retail offering. There's almost like a, well, no, no, no. I want to invest like Harvard and Yale and CalPERS. I want to invest in the same way all these large institutions do, but I need help. I need an access point. I need an intermediary to be able to do that. So that's where Hamilton Lane and Harbor Vest are putting those types of solutions together. And that's what we're doing with Vanguard. Are there other pockets of capital that you see coming into the space? I think we've touched the surface of the non-institutional market. Today, a lot of it is institutional packaging, mass affluent, ultra high net worth, high net worth. We're not even further down the triangle, if you will, if you've seen those. That's possible, but that market has even more unique needs than we call it mortal money. So when an individual actually is investing capital, they don't have the requirement of a 7% actuarial return on the duration of the liabilities and the visibility that pensions have on the duration of their liabilities. Individuals have often much less visibility on their liabilities. So it comes with different packaging needs. That ultimately, if you think about the total wealth market, that's in many ways the next biggest realm for not every manager, as Mario states, but for managers with scale and the ability to actually do everything that's required, earn the trust, invest the capital wisely as a good fiduciary, and equally as important, service that capital because that part is just as important. You've both alluded to the potential for excellent opportunities in the current market, whether that's shifting your portfolio so you have available capital the whole idea of the dynamism of the industry itself, and then, of course, new capital coming into the space. So I'd love to turn, Mario, and ask you, of these new opportunities that you see, what gets you most excited? I don't know how this cycle will play out, but I think we all have a pretty good feel of how other cycles have played out, and this one will be no different. I think you will have credit as the more interesting place today, then secondary, and then equity. And there will be things that kind of blur through it all, but The way most of these things happen is credit comes in first because people don't know how to price the equity and they have different views on how they, but companies need money. Secondaries we've talked about. So I suspect that will either concurrently or as the credit continues to go. And then equity will be the last one. And where that's most interesting in six, nine, 12 months, wherever it is, I'm not sure. But I think that to me is how this will play out because it's always played out that way. And I don't think we have change the fundamental rules of how people invest and how economies go through these kinds of things enough to say, oh, this time it'll be really different and the order will shift. So I'd be looking at it from that lens. And again, it's not to say there's no equity opportunity today, but it is to say that there's more of a wave behind you going credit secondary than equity. As we've had this explosion of private credit, capital raising and lending in this shift really since the GFC from the banks, What's your sense of the underwriting that's happened all the way through? Usually these things start well when things get ebullient, 
sometimes the standards just to put so much capital to work isn't as strong. So as you're looking at those private credit opportunities, Mario, how are you looking at the underwriting that's happened and whether that's going to hold up? I think it will hold up pretty well. There are a lot of really lousy credit groups that have formed. People feel like, hey, I've been a good equity manager. I'll go get Mario and I'll be a great credit manager because he borrowed money for a mortgage. He must know what he's doing. That is something you have to watch out for. But I would argue that the trend behind you is so strong that you're probably still going to be okay in that. I mean, a few things. The movement away from traditional sources of credit is only going to continue. Banks are getting out of that business. And what's happened in the U.S. with Silicon Valley and Signature, I mean, there's just going to be more need for private credit. The amount of capital moving into that, I think, is going to be helpful. It's not too much. And as you think about the dynamics of that market, we have had more equity in companies than we've had in prior cycles. So if we think about the risk to the credit compared to what it was in 07, 08, where you had much less equity, the risk going forward of deals that have been done is more on the equity, I believe, than on the credit. The credit is fairly well protected, not everywhere, but generally. I don't think that dynamic is going to change. So I would say, as much as I tend to be more bearish on stuff, today I'm embarrassed at all, really. I'm far more bullish on private credit than a lot of the people I hear tell me it's got to go down because it's been up. John, perspectives on private credit? Yeah, look, I see all those trends too, and it's only going in one direction. I think in many ways, because it is predominantly a floating rate market, both in sources of capital to the extent you know, you're in the CLO world or you're making those investments. So you avoid, I mean, the real blowouts that are happening now are happening in the high yield market where there's fixed rate debt underwritten somewhere in the middle of the capital structure and the large buyouts, and banks are holding that. And that's actually just shutting those avenues for new financing down even further. So there's a lot of pain that's happening. And we're seeing our managers, they don't play in the fixed rate market quite as readily. So that's been a positive. As I said before, I think CovLight or no financial covenant debt is a beautiful thing for the equity. And I actually think it's good for the lenders too. And allows you to ride out any period of volatility. And I think in addition to what Mario said around how things are capitalized, I look at the types of things that our managers do today. And I think people in the industry, they're just better than 20 and 30 and 40 years ago. Take nothing away from the founders of this industry who created something out of nothing, which is always special to be able to do that. But when I look at the playbooks that managers deploy, the resources that they bring to bear, I see it just the way Mario does in terms of the private credit being a pretty interesting place if you're just looking for yield relative to other parts of the market. What are the implications of all of that cove light, all of that flexibility for the private credit and private equity managers on the potential for distressed investing and default cycles? I mean, the default cycles have been non-existent. It's probably the only asset class within private markets that I know of that had to give back capital over the last 10 years, like we raised a distressed debt fund and then the distress didn't show up and we're going to have to give it back. That doesn't happen in other parts of the market. I think that the overall size of the distressed market, it's really become a traded market as opposed to, a, hey, let's find the fulcrum security. Let's buy a toehold position. Let's actually see once it gets put into play. Things get put into play. There are managers that have that strategy, but the relative size of that is nowhere near certainly the way every other parts of private market grew. 
because of this structural evolution within the financing markets. Yeah, when they come into your office and they do, whenever there's periods like this, just put a do not disturb or closed for business <laughs> sign. There's not going to be a distress cycle. Sorry, there'll be some distressed deals that are interesting, I'm sure. But you sort of had this period where, oh my gosh, things are going bad. Let's raise a distressed debt fund. And they still are trying, but just tell them to go away. John, I want to circle back and ask that question I'd asked of Mario, which is, as you are harvesting capital for new dynamic opportunities that aren't in your portfolio today, what are the areas you're most excited about? Maybe building on Mario's answer around the sequence of opportunities, the one addition that I would insert, I agree with the direction, is if you think about, you know, again, this lens of premium for capital availability, we've seen already an uptick in the deal flow on the co-investment side. So although overall private equity deals are down, managers, because they're either overcapitalizing from the equity standpoint, or they're reserving more than they once did, or they now won't achieve the exit that they're looking for, and they don't want to take on a leveraged recap, and they're taking on an equity recap, so the single asset secondary deals, right, where it starts to blend into the co-investment market. That kind of bifurcation, if you will, or fracture in the market, which creates a brand new access point of scale. The olden days, it was you invest in a 10-year limited partnership fund. You hope to be invested in the manager who invested in a private company, and that's how you got access. And now there are many more ways and many more points of entry into that. And so our view is creating and capitalizing on those access points, given the scale that we have is what we see as the most interesting. So it's not thematic from an industry. It's not thematic from a kind of where you are in the capital structure. It's thematic around the changing shape of the overall private markets and the cracks that are opening up that we're kind of jumping into to feed the capital where there's a premium to be had. I'm curious on the co-invest activity, maybe less so for your organizations where you have the resources to canvas co-invests and fund investment. As you're advising, say, one of your clients that maybe uses you for a pocket and they're thinking about time allocation. So yes, there are more opportunities to do co-invests, but there are also more opportunities to chase down desired funds you didn't have access to before. Mario, what are you hearing from the community in terms of how they're choosing to prioritize that time? Most investors want to do co-invest. It's sexier. It's fun. You're doing deals with general partners, so you're kind of a general partner in your own mind. But the reality is for most institutions, not all, but for most institutions, they're simply not resourced enough to do co-investments. And so our view is they either ought to do every co-investment that walks in the door and just make sure you do enough of them, you're diversified, or have someone else do it because there are so few investors, one, that have the resources to do it, and two, that are willing to take that risk because your bad deals tend to go bad sooner than your good deals become good deals. And so someone goes, wait, I can lose as much in that as I put in a fund? What the hell am I doing? So to me, the real question should be, what should you be doing? And by and large, I think most institutions should be doing funds and thinking very hard about how they're going to do co-investments and whether they're going to farm it out, just how are they going to do it? And in fact, in today's market, three years ago, on any deal, there were 150 people that said they wanted to do a co-invest on that deal. Maybe 50 of them actually ended up answering the phone and doing it. And now it's down to 10, 8, 12. It has 
very, very significantly shrunk the universe of people that are willing to do or able to do co-invest today. Well, I'm pleasantly surprised we've gotten this far without discussing the magical phrase ESG. Mario, it's one of your very, very favorite subjects. Maybe talk about your perspective on how the ESG movement is coming through the industry at a time where it's less obvious that everyone's a winner. Well, yeah. Thank you for letting me talk about it. Although my compliance area will probably delete everything I'm about to say. (laughs) It's an area filled with BS and on both sides. So on the political side, particularly in the United States, where you cannot talk about ESG in many places because it's a bad thing. Think about this. Let's take FTX. Everyone agrees that was a terrible investment by a lot of people. And fraud, how could you avoid fraud? It wasn't a fraud issue. It was a pure governance issue. If people had an ESG filter, they'd have never done that deal, ever. Having an ESG filter that keeps you away from FTX, I'd argue, is a pretty good thing. So there's that aspect of it. But the other aspect of it is so many limited partners and general partners also, but more limited partners, yak about ESG. Oh, ESG is very important to me. And then when you say to them, what does it mean to you? They have no idea. They have no idea what it means. E, S, and G means different things to different people. In Europe, E's the big deal. In the US, S is the big deal. Nobody knows what they're measuring. No one knows how to measure it. And no one really does anything, even if they do measure it. So to me, what I think we need to get to is a place where we have some understanding of what we mean by the term, how we're applying it, and what are the metrics? And then until we get there, I just think ESG will be either a bunch of happy talk on one side or a bunch of political tools, essentially, on the other side. And that's not a very healthy place for anybody. John, starting there, thoughts on ESG? From where we sit, we actually do believe in the principles and how we run our business. So if you think about some of the choices that we've made with respect to how we run our management company, we actually align reasonably well with a lot of the principles. And for us, it's ultimately an economic decision. Like I actually think a lot of the principles of ESG, as Mario articulated in the FTX example, actually align quite well with economic benefit and managing risk. So that's how we run our company. At the same time, we have a pretty strong view that our clients should have their capital invested in the way that they want it to be invested. And for some, it's a, we want it to be considered as a determinant factor, specific criteria. For many others, they want it to be considered, but not a determinant factor. And for other of our clients, they say, we don't want you to consider it at all. And we have the capability to include or not include on the basis of that fundamental principle of investing our clients' capital in the way that they want to. I do think both sides have grabbed onto those letters and pulled them apart and twisted them and extrapolated, in many cases, places where there's a lot in the core that just makes a lot of sense in terms of investing. The example I'll give you is, for years, when we looked at a co-investment into an industrial company, we would look at the safety track record of that business. And why? Well, it actually was a pretty good indicator of a lot of things. How well was it managed? How does it think about its people? How does it manage risk? Are there any future liabilities we need to think about? Now, we've been doing that for 40 years. Nobody ever called that ESG, but I could make a pretty easy argument that that lens in terms of thinking about safety track record and risk and how they treat their employees might actually fall reasonably well within some of the principles within ESG. It just was never labeled that way. It was just a risk factor and a consideration when we decided to make an investment. I'll turn to another 
interesting area, maybe risk, maybe opportunity, which is China. How are you guys thinking on a go-forward basis about the investments you make in China? That's a very, very hard one. I think that one of the things that we are all going to have to deal with as a change in this world is that it's going to be an increasingly bipolar world. And I'm not in the deglobalization camp, so I'm not going down that road. But I think I use the example of Apple. If you wanted to make money in smartphones 20 years ago, whenever it was, you invested in Apple and you had a global industry leader. That's not going to happen anymore. You will have Apple US, Apple China. And as investors, we have to recognize that, particularly as US, this is going to be the first time, at least in my career, that where you are geographically will make a difference on how you're investing geographically. So a U.S. investor investing in China is going to have to be very careful, both because of U.S. restrictions that may or may not occur and Chinese restrictions on U.S. investors that may or may not occur. Europe, probably the same way. If you're a Middle Eastern investor, it doesn't matter to you because you're probably not going to be affected by that. So it is not this global pattern you used to have for basically our entire industry's lifetime. And that will continue to be part of how we are going to evolve and have to deal with. That is not going to go away in any reasonable time frame. All right. I just wanted to follow up on that. As a representative of different types of pools of capital around the world, what does that imply for if you have a client in the Middle East and a separate client in, say, the U.S. in terms of how you'll think about investing in China? They will probably have different portfolio construction characteristics. The Middle Eastern investor will likely have a higher allocation to China, for example, than the U.S. investor. It's not a blanket thing, but that is part of, as I said, where we will have to begin looking at portfolio construction in a much more geographically. used to care a lot about it from a currency perspective. Now, I believe there's geopolitical issues that are equally, if not more important. John, how are you thinking about China? Yeah, kind of a similar way. In many ways, I'm probably more in the deglobalization camp, or at least an unwind of what we have all benefited from in the last couple of decades. In some ways, it's too large to be totally delinked from the global economy. There's enough mutual benefits that come from the East and the West that I think we'd still continue to see that. I think from an investable universe, half of the private equity in Asia had really ultimately been within China. And a lot of that was actually USD offshore. What's been interesting to watch is the size of the China private equity and venture market from a fundraising standpoint, because a lot of the capital from the West that had flowed to those managers has slowed dramatically in the last 12 months. And, you know, we do have investors who are in the, I want returns anywhere you can get them in the world to the do not invest in these regions. And we're seeing, frankly, more and more of that rear its head, which is requiring an additional degree of complexity in terms of managing pools from lots of different types of investors that have their own specialized needs. would love to just hear your thoughts on other risks that you're concerned about across your investing. Mario, why don't you go ahead? I'd say generically, the political risk is more of a concern than I really recall dealing with in my career. And by that, I mean across all of the different, we obviously talk about China, the China-US risk in terms of that. As this industry grows and becomes a much bigger part of everyday capital markets life, which it is and will continue to be larger, I suspect that the political interference in the industry will increase. And I've said, 
private equity outperforms because it's a better form of governance, period. I mean, I get the leverage and I get all that other crap, but it is a better form of governance. You'd much rather be private than public in terms of your ability to do things. If that edge begins to deteriorate because it becomes politically more challenging and more regulatory, more restrictions are put on the way you do private things, that's hard. But even in terms of, you saw in China, they regulated certain industries and basically wiped out all your equity in various companies. I don't think we've really been in a period where the politics so changed the way you invest. In the U.S., the movement between the Democrat and Republican changes the way people invest in a way that I don't remember really. Yeah, at the margin, you tax more, you tax less. But this sort of wholesale change in the way basic things operate here in the U.S., you see it in Europe, you see it everywhere. It seems to me that the risk factor of political involvement on the micro and macro level is more than I've ever seen. John? I'm a big believer of this asset class, as you and I have discussed before, and Mario points out as well. I think this industry could be two, three times the size than it is today and still be healthy and functioning and lots of flows of capital. And I do think it has to do with the superior form of alignment and governance. I think there's a durable source of excess returns. It isn't just lack of competition. This has been a competitive market for a very long time. So I think there's something durable about the excess returns. So I'm not quite as worried about what I think of as existential risk to the whole asset class, but I do think there are exogenous factors that will slow the rate of growth. I think the geopolitical events around us are probably what I worry about the most to think about something that could just cause capital flows to stop or investment activities to slow dramatically. I do think the political environment has been around us for a long time. I can't really don't think the industry has done a good job writ large around articulating the benefits that private equity brings to companies, to industries, to pension beneficiaries. I think we're getting better at that. But I think there's actually a lot of alignment between millions of individual beneficiaries who have a small slice of their pension and have benefited from these returns than people think. And that story is getting better and better told. But whether it's changes in taxation, changes in capitalization rules, changes in tax deductibility, changes in regulatory environment that make certain industries restrictive, I just am such a firm believer in the long-term resiliency of this business. That might slow growth for a window of time or put certain parts of the market up, and that'll affect certain firms, certain places within the market. But I think the industry writ large, we are witnessing the creation of a private capital markets, kind of not dissimilar to what we saw 150 years ago underneath the old oak tree or whatever tree it was down at the corner of Wall and Broad. I think we're seeing the same thing. It's just we, you know, we're kind of in it. So you don't see it quite as clearly. And to me, that's what's super exciting about the opportunities. Okay, I want to ask you both one closing question, which is, and we'll start with you, John, what's been the most challenging aspect for you and the firm of this sea change in the environment for private equity? Rubbernecking. What I mean by that is, you know, if you think about if you've ever been on a roadway or the highway and there's an accident, right? And I think what we've just experienced in the last 30 days is an accident. You know, it was a collision there's damage. But I think the traffic that's been created isn't from the accident itself. It's from the rubbernecking as people are driving by and they're looking at it and they're thinking through, well, how does that affect me? And well, maybe I should be risk off. 
And I think about the car that is Harbor Vest. Like, of course, we're watching, we're like pattern recognition, we're absorbing that, but we're also focused ahead and we're looking through the windshield at the opportunities that in front of us. So for me, like the biggest sea change has been the rubbernecking, which has kind of gummed up the investable opportunities or the capital that would otherwise flow to what I think of as a pretty expansive universe of opportunities. Mario? I like that one, actually. I may end up stealing it, John. (laughs) (laughs) To me, one of the big challenges has been the relative inexperience of a huge, huge segment of the private markets universe, whether it's at Hamilton Lane, whether it's at our clients, whether it's in the general partner community. When you think about people that they've only been in the industry for 15 years, they've not seen a cycle. And I get everyone says that they saw the cycle when COVID hit, but that was like 32 hours or 30 hours, whatever it was. That has been a challenge in the sense of you have a number of people, and in many organizations, it's almost a majority of the people that have no frame of reference. It really struck me the weekend that Silicon Valley was falling apart and we were working through some stuff when one of our more junior people said to me, oh, walk me through how a bank failure works. What happens? Because you just haven't had one unless you were here in 08. And I think he told me he was in high school. And I thought, one, I'm really jealous, but two, that's striking. And you see it play out in a lot of different ways in terms of it. I think part of it lends to John's thing of people freeze up because they just have not seen it. And so they imagine it either much worse or irrelevant. And you end up with some very, very odd conversations about what's going on and what it could or couldn't mean. Well, we started with some opening thoughts. Maybe I'll give you each a chance to give any parting thoughts. John, why don't you go ahead? That we didn't already cover. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first, I want to thank you, Ted, for the opportunity to enjoy the hour here with Mario as well as Mario. It's good to see you as well in this format rather than in a conference room before a finalist opportunity for a client. We're each trying to win. Look, I think there's no question there's stress in the market, as I've said. I think stress creates areas where you want to be careful. And I think stress creates areas where there's actually investable opportunity. It's really to be able to identify where those are in moments in time and to marshal all the resources that we have available to us to invest in those opportunities on behalf of our clients all around the world. Mario? I don't have much closing. I will say, I want to echo what John said about what an extraordinary industry this is, having come out from nowhere in a very brief period of time and created I mean, when you think about the scale of some of the companies that have been created and you think about the scale of what the industry touches, it's extraordinary. But at the end of the day, if the goal is to be making money for retirees, to be making money for people that really need the money, it's just done an incredible job. It needs to learn how to now be socially acceptable, if you will. It's kind of like an awkward teenager that goes, oh, I didn't know how to behave that way. We'll get there. And I'm just amazed sometimes at what the industry has become. Mario, John, thanks so much for sharing your insights in this really interesting time in private equity. Thank you. Thank you, Ted. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time. 